Sometimes, humans can feel that we've built a world to live in that is above and apart from nature. We concrete the ground, we regulate the temperature of our spaces, and we shield ourselves from storms. But increasingly wild and frequent weather events are making us doubt the endurance of our fortress of glass, steel and stone. Faced with the environmental triple threat of carbon emissions, biodiversity loss and flooding, engineers and scientists are increasingly looking to nature for solutions. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. In this episode we are travelling to Scotland, to a marshy stretch of land on the Firth of Forth to learn about one of these solutions. It's a project that could change the way we think about the management of our coastline. The Firth is the estuary of the Forth River, which passes by Edinburgh. It has for centuries been a strategic seaway, linking the heart of Scotland with the rest of the world. It has low-lying fertile land and also dramatic escarpments. It is a fjord carved out by the Forth Glacier during the last glacial period, but the most significant changes since the retreat of the ice sheets have been human. The coming of industry and the expansion of agriculture led to the construction of seawalls to hold back the tides and reclaim land for exploitation. But in the grey of the morning on Wednesday the 3rd of October 2018, an excavator fired into life at a location on the southern bank of the Firth. After years of discussions and months of planning, teams working at the direction of the RSPB, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, breached the seawall and allowed the tide to flow through. The site is called Skin Flats RSPB Reserve and is part of a managed realignment of the existing coastline that will allow tidal waters to once again inundate an area of land. Land that was previously reclaimed from those same waters. The new intertidal habitat is an ecological environment called a salt marsh. A marsh that sits between dry land and open salt water and floods each high tide. Salt-tolerant grasses and shrubs trap and bind sediments. That part will be important later. Like the more famous mangrove forests of the tropics, a salt marsh is a natural flood barrier and a highly biodiverse ecosystem. These are both good things. The saline lagoons and marsh are already attracting birds back to the area. But while this is all going on, there's been a flurry of excitement at the nearby University of St Andrews. The Skin Flats Reserve is exactly the type of environment they've been studying for some time. I'm based in the School of Geography and Sustainable Development. I'm a marine geoscientist by background and also work here at the Scottish Oceans Institute. So I'm broadly involved in the marine sciences, but also looking at coastal processes This is Professor Bill Austin. 
Starting out as a geologist, he found his way into paleoclimatology, which is looking at the Earth's natural climate variability over long periods of time. And then he eventually found his way into paleoclimate research. So we've worked, for example, on the evidence for recent warming of our climate based on these paleoclimate records. And they're quite important because they take us back beyond the instrumental period. The instrumental period began in the 18th century, when people first began taking routine weather measurements at fixed sites. So some of the department's work is studying natural climate records that predate human record keeping. And some of our work has been to connect these archives of climate, these paleoclimate records, with some of the instrumental evidence that we have for warming. So that's been quite an exciting piece of work. And then over the years, sort of realised that these sediment records that we were working on hold vast amounts of stored carbon. This realisation that there was sedimentary carbon in the marine environment itself, and that it could and should potentially be considered a carbon sink and a store, led to the concept of blue carbon. Blue carbon can be defined in the strict sense in the way that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, would define blue carbon as coastal vegetated ecosystems. So the three main habitats we would recognise would be uh, mangrove forests, salt marsh and seagrass meadows. The sedimentary process in coastal environments derives its carbon from two sources. Terrestrial sources, meaning from river systems, and marine sources. Now, in both these cases, the carbon is originally fixed through photosynthesis from carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So it's a nature-based approach whereby plants and other organisms are taking in carbon that would otherwise be in the atmosphere and they lock it away in organic matter, and some of that organic matter becomes stored in the sediments. Although the Firth may have been formed as a fjord, the fjords on the west coast of Scotland have a more traditional look to them, that much narrower and sharper aesthetic. And the university has studied them extensively. They are natural sediment traps, much like the U-bend in a sink. They're very good at capturing sediments and therefore storing carbon. And the first reason we went to study these systems was because we thought they would have very rapid sediment accumulation and burial. And this would give us very expanded, detailed climate records. And that was where we started. And then we realized they were also very effective at burying carbon. So we actually called these systems uh, global carbon hotspots. They are recognised globally as very important places in the Earth's system that stores carbon. Carbon storage is very much on people's minds at the moment, and due to COP26, there has been a deal of interest in the potential of these sinks. Work is ongoing to quantify the net effect on carbon of these places, but it is thought that Scottish sea locks, or fjords, lock away three to four times the annual emissions of Scotland. So that gives you some sense of, of the magnitude of the store that's building up in these natural systems. And in fact, one of the things that we're really focused on 
As we disturb the marine environment more and more, all sorts of activities, is the idea that we might disturb the carbon in the sediments and therefore a move towards understanding the stock of carbon in these sedimentary systems and the need to avoid emissions through that disturbance process. Into this field of study came the Skinflats RSPB Reserve. I think uh, quite an exciting one when we think about the context of sea level rise. We can uh, hold the line as many engineering solutions uh, for coastal infrastructure need to and hold the sea back. But increasingly we're recognising that we can let the sea back in uh, to some places where it's appropriate to do that. And these habitats are naturally forming in our coastal environments. They're intertidal and they form very quickly, typically within one to three years, we would see the natural system re-establishing itself. And quite quickly, those ecosystems start to deliver all sorts of benefits for nature, for biodiversity. But also, they start to build up new stores of blue carbon. So for Bill and his department, it is quite an exciting emerging opportunity. It's probably not appropriate everywhere, but where we can do this, I think there are fantastic opportunities. And we also need to recognise in England, for example, it's estimated historically that somewhere between 80 and 85% of our coastal salt marsh habitats were reclaimed you know, in recent centuries. And we did this for agriculture and other sorts of opportunities. But these are places particularly with sea level rise, that, you know, we could reimagine and let the sea back in. And this does create all sorts of opportunities. A major ongoing project at the moment is a national inventory of carbon stock. And Bill has been leading a project to estimate the amount of carbon that's stored in these coastal wetlands. These coastal managed realignment schemes are increasingly important in terms of, as I've said, flood management, but they offer an opportunity to think about the additional carbon. And there's an investment opportunity in those carbon credits that individuals, corporations might want to purchase as part of their emissions management, their offsetting, if you like. Ultimately, some activities and industries will be very difficult if not impossible to decarbonize. So this creates a very interesting opportunity, a synergy, if you like, where if we develop this science, demonstrate the additional blue carbon benefits, we could help with uh, some of these schemes in terms of private investment that would perhaps help push a scheme over the line. One of the challenges is to think about land management, ownership and the current planning system, or to put it more simply. The cost of buying farmland to then flood it, you know, is not insignificant. So it requires thinking carefully about a variety of stakeholders. And of course, I think for the public, they would naturally have, have this idea that we hold back the sea to create 
coastal flood protection. And uh, we need to change in some ways some of the thinking around the benefits of managed realignment. Often these are large engineering projects. And, you know, I think we, we need to work with a whole range of partners to convince everybody that in the right place, these are very good schemes. Bill's work at Skin Flats has primarily focused on the natural salt marsh adjacent to the coastal realignment site, the potential for carbon storage, and also the rate of carbon accumulation in the sediments. We've used uh, radionuclide traces, so lead 210, uh, cesium fallout, creates spikes in our stratigraphic record. We've used this to date the accumulation of those sediments at that site. And what we find is that uh, skin flats in the fourth estuary, close to Edinburgh, actually has very high at sediment and carbon accumulation rates. They think this is driven by the high sediment load that comes down through the Forth. So it's quite turbid, muddy water. And the plants act as natural baffles and they trap the sediment and they build up over time. So this is how a marsh system would accrete. And actually with sea level rise, these marshes, if they have sediment supply, will keep building up and, and will accumulate and accumulate carbon as sea level rises. And we think the fourth is actually a very good place for these schemes. We probably didn't know that until quite recently, but it does turn out to be a, a good place for this type of managed realignment scheme. Analyzing the best sites is important to make the most of finite resources for reworking the coastline. To do this analysis, they're looking at projections of future sea level rise, which uses numerical models to input different atmospheric greenhouse gas concentrations, and so calculate the rise. This is then compared to digital elevation models and high-resolution LiDAR data to project the impact of these expected sea level rises onto the land. Then historical maps are consulted to see which of these areas correspond with former salt marshes. And that allows the researchers to quickly identify the best places for managed realignment projects. And this has been done actually by the RSPB for the entire United Kingdom, but not using the sea level projections. And there are literally thousands of hectares potentially available for these schemes. So we could then think about the other criteria as I've mentioned, perhaps sediment supply that would allow these systems to build up over time. Perhaps the value of the adjacent land, so that we could think about the most cost-effective place. And then also other considerations like the need for flood protection, flood defence and, and so on and so forth. So I think there are ways to do this. The economics of this are yet to be fully worked out, but with a renewed government focus on solutions to the climate emergency, more work to understand this is expected. There's also work needed to understand the net effect of managing these sites on the carbon cycle. If we could get the habitat into the National Greenhouse Gas Inventory, I think this would be a further incentive for government because there would be some benefits to us towards our net zero ambition. 
And I think the other benefits are going to come from private investors. We shouldn't expect government to fund all of these schemes. And private investors who are looking for carbon credits. And these schemes are quite attractive. Blue carbon is an evolving field of study, and it also incorporates sinks in the open seas, not just along the coastline. Scottish waters are five times the size of its land area. And we place a great deal of emphasis on our forests and our peatlands here in Scotland as part of the solution to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. We haven't really put that emphasis on our seas yet. And I think we don't fully understand the magnitude of the sink, but we know the magnitude of the store is an order of magnitude at least greater than the terrestrial soil store. So if we are worried about avoided emissions, I would argue that protecting some areas of our seabed to avoid emissions could be a really useful strategy. But I have to admit that we don't have all the evidence that we need to really inform a policy in this area yet, but we're moving in that direction. It's quite exciting times. So what can we say about the global potential for blue carbon? What is that headline number? Yeah, Alex, that's quite a challenging question. Uh, we're getting close, I think. What, what I would say is that broadly, it's been estimated that globally, blue carbon can offer about 1% to 3% of what we need to achieve global warming and keep it within the 1.5 degrees scenario that was agreed at Paris. Doesn't sound very much, but it does accrue year, you know, year on year. We're building up if, if we have these healthy systems, they're also storing that carbon and those stores build up over time. So I think another way for your listeners to maybe explain this is that as we get closer and closer to the net zero target, we're going to have some hard to remove emissions. You know, agriculture is always going to give us some emissions, particularly, you know, red meat production, ruminants. And so these, these sort of natural sinks become quite important in, in that balancing act. As with so many of these solutions, it's one tool of many to mitigate the challenges that lie ahead of us. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Bernadette Ballantyne. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young. And our own salty Celtic bog is Rory Harris. Special thanks to the University of St Andrews. Thank you for listening. You can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps, on Facebook, on Twitter and on LinkedIn.